Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Today, we're talking about getting approval to negotiate before starting the actual negotiations. Be sure to join the Contracting Officer Podcast group on LinkedIn to stay connected with other podcast listeners who are winning in the government market. Okay, let's get started with this week's episode. We're talking today about the responsibility and authority to negotiate and agree to a binding final deal. We have to come to agreement. We're going to talk about how that happens in the government world with the understanding that prior to negotiations starting, it's common for the negotiators on either side to receive some type of authority to negotiate within some kind of range, kind of greases the process. Before we do that, let's stop and say thanks. Greases the process. I want to say thanks this week to Ted Wright. Ted's a business development manager at LPR International. Uh, LPR provides program management and professional services uh, in the federal contracts market. They're also an 8A and a women-owned small business based out of Landham, Maryland. Is that how you say it? Lanham, yep. Lanham, see? (laughs) Lanham, Maryland. I want to thank Ted specifically for liking the podcast episodes on LinkedIn and for taking the time to talk with me on the phone about the podcast. The direct feedback we get from listeners is one of the ways we keep getting better, or at least trying to get better. Try to get better. With each episode. So thanks, Ted. All right, let's get talking about negotiation clearance. That's the purpose of this episode. Sometimes it's called business clearance or negotiation range or a ceiling or like a hundred other things. I've seen it called the pre-price negotiation memorandum, the business clearance memorandum, the pre-negotiation structure, the the pre-negotiation objective. What's a pre-award clearance is another one. Yeah, I think we used just used to call it the pre-neg. Pre-neg, you got to shorten things. This is usually a document on the government side anyway. It's it's a tab in the government's official contract file. It went from being a tab in the actual hard copy when we started together to it ended up being a folder in the electronic version. But the point is, it's its own space in the file. You've got to justify and get clearance for what you're spending. Industry documents the same kind of things. If you're a subcontracts administrator on the industry side, you're essentially serving the same duties as a contracting officer on the government side and have a lot of the same responsibilities. Subcontracting administrators have very rigorous filing requirements because they need to be able to show that they're doing all that to the government. They would usually have something like this. Contracts administrators that are dealing with the government may or may not have a formal file with tabs for this kind of thing, depending on how sophisticated your company's processes are. The purpose of this business clearance, pre-negotiation objective, pre-neg, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) Pick a name. It's to give the negotiators room to move their negotiation position without constantly having to go back up chain for approval. Think of this like true car. I think it's a a website where you can get a range of what you should expect. People like you are spending on a car, whatever car you're looking for. It gives you a range of... 5,000 to 10 or whatever. Therefore, when you go in to buy your car, your mindset is my, or maybe your spouse's mindset who approved you <laughs> to buy this car. It, the mindset is I'm going to be within that range. I may be at the top end of it. I want to be at the bottom end of it, but you're going to be within that range. That's the same principle. 
you probably wouldn't buy the car. You probably wouldn't agree to buy the car if the dealer wanted to sell it to you for over the top of that range because some type of authority, in this case, truecar.com, has has told you that, that eh, they'll sell it to you within this range, most likely. And and maybe you use TrueCar as the clearance authority with your spouse to spend X amount on said car. <laughs> if right. you go above that range, you're not going to get approval. Exactly. So, yeah. Same idea. How this happens is unique to each office, agency, company. It could be as simple as like you're saying with TrueCar. Go to a site, see a range, you go do it all yourself. For major, major negotiations, I remember having to brief way up the chain to the approval authority, the person that was actually the acquisition authority here. There'd be a meeting. You'd have to prepare a whole deck of, of charts to, to, <laughs> to be ready to discuss each and everything that you want to do. It doesn't have to be that complicated. In some of my government jobs, it was a simple email saying, hey, I'd like authority to negotiate within this range and you know a few little data points to support that. It really depends on the size and complexity, right? Sometimes I was a contract specialist getting approval from the contracting officer. And that's it because it was like a million dollars or something, right? Yep. I remember some agencies, it went, the, the breaks were 1 million, 5 million, 20 million, and 100 million. And so each person, kind of to your point, that one over 100 million, that one's going to go all the way to the acquisition executive, which you know, PowerPoint briefings, his staff gets to see it all along the way. Everybody gets the quote unquote add value at <laughs> each step. Where the but the principle's still the same. What just what level of clearance? And if even if I remember there were a few times even getting clearance from my contracting officer when I was a contract specialist, it's a it's a million dollar modification. That's still a big number, and it's still I had to document all this stuff because the FAR requires it. Yeah, yeah, I remember for a multi billion dollar deal where we had to fly to the Pentagon to brief a general who was yeah. the acquisition authority. We talked about some logical reasons why you would want to have some type of pre negotiation approval. The ultimate reason is because the FAR says so. Let's move on to FAR time. This is FAR 15.406 that's talking about documentation that is required. 15.406-1 is titled Pre-Negotiation Objectives. Sound familiar? Very. Subparagraph A tells you what they do. The pre-negotiation objectives establish the government's initial negotiation position They assist in the contracting officer's determination of a fair and reasonable price. They should be based on the results of the contracting officer's analysis of the offer's proposal, taking into consideration all of the work that other folks have done as well. It's not just the contracting officer. 15.406-1B gives you the shall. This tells you what you do with that. The contracting officer shall establish pre-negotiating objectives before the negotiation of any pricing action. Any price range, you have to have something. Yeah, somebody has to document this, is the point. But how much do you have to document? It goes on to say, the scope and depth of the analysis supporting the objectives should be directly related to the dollar value, importance, and complexity of the pricing action. And when cost analysis is required, the contracting officer shall document the pertinent issues to be negotiated, the cost objectives, and a profit or fee objective. The meatiest part of that paragraph is it says scope and depth of the analysis supporting the objective should be related to dollar value, et cetera. That's the thinking part of the job. Now it's a judgment call. It's like, how much do I have to have? And it's very easy when, even if it's a half a million dollars, it's very easy to get sucked into this vortex of, oh, I need to have all the data. I need to, I need six more months to research this. Or likewise, if it's a hundred million dollar action, you should expect 
that the people up the chain, they're going to want to know how is this worth that much money? Right. So that's, yeah, that's, that's the should part. And it's, it's funny how many times I've come into thinking I got this thing. It's a, it's a layup. This is easy. And they go, well, what about when it rains on Tuesdays? Like crap, I didn't think of that. And you have to go back and redo it because they're approving it. So there's that should exercise. It's very interesting how some agencies are really hardcore about this and other ones that want to get that stuff done faster. Don't get so hung up on it. Yeah. And I think as you gain experience, you start to internalize, Hey, I know all this stuff. So maybe I don't have to document as much. You start going faster. I know when I was, when I was junior, I probably overdid everything because I didn't know the limits. I didn't know how much thinking I was allowed to do. Let's put this in the time zones in the acquisition and execution time zones. Acquisition time zones, if you're not familiar with them are in episode three and the execution time zones are in episode 84. On the acquisition side, this is the last of the zones. This is the source selection zone. Now, negotiations are more common with sole source acquisitions than competitive acquisitions. But on competitive acquisitions, they could occur during discussions, which we talked about on different episodes. Or if you're using a select to negotiate strategy, you could select the apparent winner and negotiate a final price. In that case, you'd need a pre-negotiation objective. On the execution side, in the execution time zones, this is the performance zone. If you have an engineering change proposal, if you're negotiating a change to the contract, you're going to need a pre-negotiation objective. And like we talked about, everything actually needs some type of objective, but the amount of documentation varies with the size. Why is it important to understand that that both sides have pre-negotiation objectives? If you don't know how far you can move your initial position during the negotiation, then you're not really able to negotiate. Right. If, if, if you come in and say, I'll give you $5 for it. And they say, well, I want $5 and four cents. And you say, no, $5. That's all I can do. You're not really <laughs> negotiating. That's more of an ultimatum, I think. Yeah, exactly. Negotiators have to be given the authority to, to negotiate and then close the deal. They need to be able to move enough to get the deal done. Without this pre-negotiation approval, a negotiator can't actually close the deal, right? They spend a lot of time talking about the deal, but then they have to bring other people back in. So make sure on the government side, it's easy to know who has the authority to close the deal. On the industry side, not so easy. So it's important to make sure that your counterpart also has the authority to close the deal. Otherwise, you might be negotiating with the wind. Yeah, I've actually had those where I, I, I thought I was done. And then after we, we came to a final conclusion, I said, okay, well, my boss needs to sign this. As a contracting officer, I'm the one that signs it. I didn't realize that the contracts manager for that company isn't the guy that signs it. He's not really my counterpart. And I didn't think to ask that question before we spent you know two hours negotiating. Right. So learn by doing. Remember that while everything is negotiable, not everything is covered by that pre-negotiation authority. So if you get too fancy trying to negotiate nuances of the proposal or of the price or of the solution, it's pretty likely that the other side is going to have to go back to their management for guidance or, or approval to negotiate. So you may be able to negotiate literally anything, but it may take more time. This came up once we had progress-based payments. In the middle of negotiation, we realized we would set up some progress payments. Problem is, the approval of the cash flow behind those progress payments was not something the guy across the table for, could approve. Right. And we didn't realize that until we put it in front of his boss and he went, wait a minute, we can't wait three months to get the first payment. 
so yeah, that was we got too fancy. Like, hey, cool, we can <laughs> apply this, and then it, it it got things even messier. So yeah, it's it's really easy to slip into that. Get, I like how you said get too fancy. Is it really <laughs> easy to do that if you're not careful? Where does the pre negotiation range come from? On the government side, contracting officers often use the the technical evaluation comments to build the the cost range. So they they get a document from from the technical evaluators that say we think that the engineering labor is 10% too high for these reasons or for this part they don't need 7 of them they only need 5 of them because of this reason those would go into the contracting specialists request for range they would say hey i i, I think i'm going to try to get it down to 5 of these things but i would like range to go up to 6 in case the contractor has valid points to refute what our technical guys are saying for profit, contracting officers often use weighted guidelines, and we've talked about that on separate episodes. And what about the industry side? Industry's doing somewhat of the same thing, but oftentimes they're looking at the overall return on investment in addition to individual profit goals. Yeah, it's, it's very easy to get hung up on individual profit because that's the one thing we can see. It's at the end. It's sometimes it's the most obvious. But there are a lot more pieces to the puzzle from the industry perspective that if they don't explain them during negotiations, as a contracting officer, I think they only care about profit. We have to be careful we're not looking at one thing when our counterpart cares about a lot more than that one thing. Exactly. On a big contract, you might be negotiating individual cost elements. You might be looking at it as, oh, this much engineering labor, this much test and evaluation, this much management labor. In the end, when it gets on contract, contractor might only care about the total cost pool because the individual elements don't matter so much anymore during execution. They're looking at the big picture. It's pretty common now for the government to try to limit fee on on pass-through items like materials or subcontracts or other things that the prime contractor isn't performing directly with their people. What happens is that reduces the overall profitability, the effort. It, it dilutes it. So that can become a big hang-up if the work is largely passed through. And in the end, the contractor is only going to make 2% overall return on the effort. They could invest that money in a, in a certificate of deposit and make 2%. So maybe, maybe they don't want to get into, into all that mess, right? If you know how the other side prepares, reviews, and then approves the negotiation range, that's going to give you an edge. Now you know what the other side cares about and who approves each step along the way. So you know, for example, how long is this going to take? You have a better understanding of how long it's going to take, who has to approve it, who cares about which piece of the puzzle that negotiations used to turn into. Yeah, this is the context we always talk about. Specifically on the government side, one of the things that hung me up a lot of times as a young contract specialist was asking for or receiving too narrow of a pre-negotiation range from the contracting officer. What that means is I don't have a lot of room to move, so I'm not really negotiating a lot, and I end up having to go back to get more range or a higher ceiling uh, almost immediately upon starting the negotiations. Particularly if you don't know what your counterpart's number is. If your range is between 105 and 115,000, and their range is 130,000 to 140,000, you guys aren't in the same place. Right, you're you never going to get close. You sit down and go, oh, crap. Now you both have to go back to the, to the drawing board. Yeah. Whereas if you said, 
100 to 150 and you both have an overlap, okay, you're going to end up in, I don't know, let's say end up in there. And theirs is 130 to 180. At least you got some overlap to work with. Yep. It's not just too narrow of a range on the overall deal. Sometimes there's a, there's a range on individual price elements. Don't get too hung up on individual price elements or cost elements unless you have to. Think big picture. As long as the final price is within the range that you're approved for, it's okay to talk about the individual elements to give you a basis for why you're negotiating a final price, but don't get stuck on a ceiling or negotiating the individual elements. In the end, you're, you're trying to negotiate a final deal. We talked about that in the water wrap rates episode. There are certain things that are negotiable and there are certain things that are somewhat negotiable and there's some things that they're just facts. Right. Like your G&A rate, not really something I can negotiate on an individual task project. I had those situations too where DCAA and DCMA have reviewed rates, right? We have approved rates for G&A, for general administrative costs, and the contracting officer wants to negotiate it. Well, I can't actually negotiate anything different than it's already been approved. That's completely different podcast. So set, <laughs> set that aside. Rabbit hole. Government folks, remember that industry often has as many approval gates or, or even more approval gates than you do to get things done. I was putting together a deal, putting together a relationship with one of our new customers. And I was surprised that the VP of operations, like the number two guy in this company, he couldn't approve the deal. And this wasn't a, it wasn't a multi-million dollar relationship, but it was starting out the relationship with Skyway. And I was amazed at how many people he had to go through to get what felt like a, a pretty small deal relative to the stuff I used to sign when I was a contracting officer. Yeah, sometimes the only the contracts people have approval to close a deal. Sometimes only the, the head legal counsel of a company has approval to close a deal. Sometimes it's the CEO. Point is, make sure you know who has the authority and how you get to them so that you don't waste your time during negotiations. Yeah, it's kind of like we did that episode called Who's the Decider? About yeah. Who's the Decider on the government side? Well, in this case, who's the decider? Who can actually sign the contract? And if they're not in the room... You're, you're going to have to go back yeah. to the well. Last thing on the government side before we move on to talking about the industry side. Once negotiations are complete, during contract execution, you're not going to be so concerned with the individual price or cost elements as proposed, especially if the procuring contracting officer hands it off to an administrative contracting officer. That ACO might never see the proposal or read the price negotiation memorandum unless something goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What I mean is, once the contract is signed and it says, we'll pay you $100,000 to do this job, at that point, you may only be tracking, have I gotten to $100,000 yet? You, you don't care whether there was three hours of this or four hours of that or three widgets or five widgets. It's just the job has to be done and this is all the money we're going to spend. All right, industry side. If you've ever had insight into the contracting officer's workload, you know they probably have a stack of files on their desk <laughs> or emails in their queue. And that means a lot of times the government folks are they're focused on getting the deal done and moving on. If it's your company and you sell one thing, this may be the most important thing to you and your company, and that's all you're focused on. Your contracting counterpart on the government side is probably buying 100 different things at the same time. And just wants to get this one done and move on to the next important thing. It helps to be creative in, in helping the contracting officer stay within that approved range by understanding how that range works. I mean, there are some levers they can pull, 
But like you said, they got a hundred different contracts. They need to pull levers to get the, the work awarded. Understanding which levers they can pull and when is going to help you. And likewise, you know, where do you have some leverage to speed the process up on your side? Like in any negotiation, pay attention to the clues that the government's giving you in their negotiation strategy. What are they willing to move on and, and where are they stuck? It, it's really okay to ask if they're at the top of their range for an element, if they have range by element, or the top of their range overall. It really lets you know whether it's worth continuing that conversation or whether you need to find other areas or other levers to pull to, to negotiate. It's like you were saying, Kevin, if your range is 105 to 115,000 and the other side's range is 150 to 160,000, they don't cross, right? The sooner that you figure out that you don't have any mutually agreeable range, sometimes you just have to ask, what, what can you justify here? Why do you believe that that's the price limit ceiling for this element or this acquisition? An interesting way to look at this is if those ranges don't overlap, you can't even start negotiating. And so I used to be very leery of, of sharing what my range was. And then I, what I realized is if, if, if they don't know what my range is and I don't know what their range is, we're not ready to negotiate. We touched on the authority levels before. Make sure your counterpart has the, the authority to close the deal. At a recent acquisition conference or somewhere, I don't remember where I heard it. I don't remember who it was. I think it was the chief of naval operations. So this is a pretty lousy sourcing for a quote. Don't know where I heard it and not <laughs> quite sure who it was. But it, was but it some, might have been somebody that I'm going to name. Someone high up in the Navy said something like, I've raised acquisition authorities so that lower level government people have approval authorities in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Like a $250 million acquisition can be approved at many levels lower than in previous times. And he asked, what has industry done to match this? And what he was getting at is he will have a Navy captain, an 06, with hundreds of millions of dollars approval authorities and on the industry side, a senior vice president, his counterpart at the company, that captain's counterpart in industry at the company they're negotiating with, that senior vice president can't actually agree to anything. It was kind of an interesting challenge to say, hey, the government is trying to streamline acquisitions by giving people lower on the food chain more authority to do things. But it gets gummed up on the industry side because industry still has these giant approval processes that require the CEO and the chief legal counsel to approve deals that are, you know, worth pennies comparatively. And of course, the, the reason for that is that the Navy's not going to go out of business if they, if they make a $250 million mistake. But, but the conversation is still relevant. Yeah. Because they're never going to be the same because the goals and the structure and the organization don't, don't operate the same. But they should be closer together. Yeah, I think the point is great. You're right. It's a different amount of, of risk. You know, what happens if you're the, that Navy captain and something goes wrong? Well, you might not get promoted, but you're probably not going to get fired the same way that an industry person could be fired. And you're not going to put the whole Navy out of business, like you said. But it's still an interesting point, right? One way to streamline things is don't make people go to such high levels for their pre-negotiation approval authorities. All right, we're like running around the whole forest here trying to find the trees. <laughs> Let's wrap this one up, Kevin. There's so many different angles to this. It, it, it's, it's a tough one to, to cram in. Bottom line, both sides have approval thresholds. Historically, I've been surprised that the approval thresholds 
counter to what I thought are actually lower on the industry side. Yeah. Like the, the amount of mother may eyes on the industry side, there are more of them, which I wouldn't have thought that when I was, when I was a government CEO. So, so government side, be aware of that. Don't assume it's just about profit either. Profit is one element. It can be really distracting if you shine your headlights just on profit. Realize that it's one of the many things that industry is dealing with and they're getting approval for. It's one piece of, of the puzzle. On the industry side, be creative in ways to stay within the government range. I mean, they're motivated to get it done, right? The, to me as a contracting officer, the risk for my, my customers are giving me the stink eye because they want the deal done. So I've got this range, but I got to justify staying within it. I can go to the top of it, but I got to justify going to the top of it. It can't just say, well, your range is 115. Give me 115. That's not really how this works. You need to be able to explain to me what can I put in this pre-negotiation memorandum, business clearance memorandum, whatever this document is to say, yes, you gave me this range clearance. Here's what we ended up negotiating on. This is why it's worth the top of the range. This is why the true car worth, worth you know, $15,000 was worth the extra five bucks. I'll wrap up by reminding you that sometimes people aren't emotionally attached to a particular number. They just want to negotiate anything within their approved range and close the deal so they can move on to the next. On the industry side, you might be more emotionally attached because, again, if, if you're a small company and you only do one thing and this deal is critical for your future, you might be pretty attached to it. Your counterpart on the government side, this might be one of 10 things they're trying to negotiate that week. And they're not so concerned about your company's future as long as they get this what you promised to deliver for this contract, they really just want to get this negotiated within the range and then move on to something else that has nothing to do with you. So while you may be emotional about it, don't forget that your counterpart may not. So the, just like you were saying, the more creative you can be in helping them get to some deal within that range, the easier it is. What you want to avoid is making them go back to get more approvals and, and just take more time to wrap things up. Okay, let's wrap this one up then. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> I'll see you, Paul. Okay, that's it for this episode. We'll see you next week. And hopefully, we'll also see you in the Contracting Officer Podcast group on LinkedIn. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.